Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hello, everybody, and thank you for hanging with us while we had a shuffle switch from last Thursday. There was a definite power glitch, as in we had no power. 
So that is counterintuitive for a course presentation. So thank you all everybody for extending grace so that we can reschedule to today. But Aaron, how you doing? Fill us in. How was your Monday? Monday was good. I realized I still have food on my scrub pants, but you can't see them. So it's fine. There was a yogurt water table explosion. So nice. We're good. We survived. Nice. We had, I'm rocking my PFD shirt and thank you feeding matters. And I had a new PFD eval today come through with a little one where they did an x-ray and think they found part of her intestines wrapped around her pancreas and subsequently it unkinked, but we don't know what happened between A and B. And I have to say that was a new one for me. Mm-hmm. And that was the last thing I did before I drove home to come do this. So we'll, I'm going to have to think on that and do a little bit more research. So if y'all are all out there and have survived the crazy Mondays and also have interesting new cases, we are right there with you doing Google Scholar research. So go team. <laughs> but okay. So the topic for today is cerebral palsy. And that has been a topic that Aaron and I have wanted to talk about for a while Personally, I've seen some children that have had milder forms of cerebral palsy that have gone undiagnosed for a multitudinal factors. And the catch is we can't treat effectively if we don't know the primary etiology or etiologies that's driving what it is that we're seeing. So we have to be aware of red flags, signs, or symptoms so that we can help encourage and make appropriate referrals because y'all, you're going to find children at five, six, seven, and eight that still have not obtained the appropriate diagnoses. So I feel very strongly about that one. Erin, anything else to add to that? I mean, we're seeing a lot more children now who have a multitude of diagnoses. So it's important when you have a child either that doesn't have a CP diagnosis or will eventually have a CP diagnosis or does have a diagnosis, it's part of the information. Because I think the same as with any diagnosis, sometimes like everything gets shoved on that or pushed on that. Specifically, I mean, everything, autism gets blamed for everything now, which is really interesting. You'll have children that have genetic diagnoses that impact a multitude of systems and have neurologic impacts, but things oftentimes get blamed on the diagnoses that people better understand, I think is what might happen. Well, every autistic person is different, but the diagnosis you're more comfortable with, you may push a lot of things and blame it on that. But I've also worked recently with quite a few patients who go to the Shriners Hospital that's around here. And so they have a lot of very interesting surgeries to help with various aspects of their CP diagnosis. So that's been a big learning curve for me. I'll talk a little bit about that in the presentation today, but I don't know if that answered your question, but that's what I've been thinking about. It does. Some of the primary leading causes of cerebral palsy kind of coincide with our micropremies. And we're seeing more and more micropremies. I have one little guy in my caseload who was a 24-weeker and he has spastic CP and is now going for the dual diagnosis of ASD. But at the same time, he had a grade four bleed. So it's his stroke also oxygen deprivation in utero, birth trauma, which coincides with oxygen deprivation and or strokes, 
those are the primary causes of like 90% of CP, 90 or 89%. Thank you, CDC. Also, CDC has a beautiful website for cerebral palsy. Not so great for language skills. Just going to go ahead and put that out there. But actually summing up cerebral palsy, it looks like they might've actually, I don't know, referenced the right group of people, but RAR, that's a soapbox for another day. Maybe we'll tackle CDC updates and appropriate normative data for the month of June. Actually, that's a really good idea. Let's do that for the month of June. Okay. But scroll number one, it's been the end of a really long day, but for that particular little guy, He's very restrictive in what he's eating. And he was one of the cases that I'm working with that was kind of driving this. And again, like you said, they want to blame everything on the suspected ASD diagnosis, but he's so tight. We can't have bowel movements and he doesn't want to get wet or try new foods, but everything is like his whole system. Like we're Botox injection from the top Mm -hmm. down. And that's, So folks, that's why we're here today. And y'all, we are live. So please make sure that you engage the Q&A and the chat box and we'll flip back and forth. Okay, Erin, do you want to start us in with, there's four overarching categories of cerebral palsy. You want to kick us off, love? So like Michelle was saying, the spastic cerebral palsy is the most common type of CP. I think based on the CDC, it affects about 80% of people with cerebral palsy. And those are the patients you'll see that have very increased muscle tone, really stiff. Their movements can be a little awkward. And so these are the kiddos who sometimes will have, like you said, Botox, Baclofen to help with that spasticity. And there's different levels of that as well, either hemiplegia which would be one side of the body, quadriplegia, which would be the most severe form that affects all four limbs. And this is all, like Michelle said, going to be impacted by where they're affected in their brain because cerebral palsy is a motor deficit. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. if we hit cerebellum or brainstem function, like we're going to have major more severity and presentation. Mm -hmm. But I think that's something that as speech pathologists, we have to remember is like cerebral palsy is overarching difficulty in the ability to move and maintain balance and posture. So cerebral having to do with the brain palsy weakness to the muscles. So we're going to have children with cerebral palsy that aren't going to have cognitive or language deficits. And then you are going to have children with cerebral palsy that may have those, but a big thing, and I'll go into the other categories, but that I want to talk about is that Unfortunately, because children with cerebral palsy have these motor deficits, it is a lot harder for them to communicate what they know and access in which I will go on a lot of soapboxes today is like number one for these children. If you, you need to work with OT and PT to figure out if they're not able to verbalize, for example, if our patients with spastic CP, if you think overall, if all their limbs are spastic, that's going to impact a lot of other parts of their body. And so if they do have difficulties with those movements to be able to create, to verbalize and express language by speaking, we need to find other ways to help them access and tell us what they understand. Because there are so many kids that I feel like I get in the clinic who are older. We know a lot more than we did when you get kids that are in their teens. We know a lot more now than we did before, but 
people didn't give them access to be able to communicate. So it's like they're trapped in their own body. And, you know, we have a lot of episodes about AAC, about all different types that you can use, but that's like my biggest soapbox with working with children with CP is like, you need to find a way if they're not speaking to help them communicate and presume competence, just like we talk about with our neurodivergent population. Sorry, but I just like, that's perfect. I have had OT say to me, well, they don't need a device or like, they're not ready for a device. And you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. So we're going to go over. There's no prerequisites for that, but I'm so proud of you. (laughs) I just get very, I get like a lot of conversations about this recently. So, but we're going to talk about the category that has apatoid CP, which we shared a patient who had that, but you go ahead. Yes. Hold that thought. Yes. Because, uh, sweet baby girl. Okay. So with the spasticity, this is where an SLP often gets called in individuals who have spastic CP, especially in its milder forms, it may not be as blatantly noticeable and it may manifest in different ways. So for instance, I had a little girl that I've had the pleasure of working with for several years now and her signs and symptoms, and we have to be aware of what the signs and symptoms are, was that she was tiptoe walking and dragging. When she lifted her foot up, it was like she was dragging the top of her shoe completely off. So her parents were spending a significant amount of money buying her new shoes, not because she was wearing the sole of the shoe out. Also interesting side point. I've had a lot of physical therapists tell us that when they're watching children walk, they always check the tread patterns on the bottom of their shoes to see where the wear is the most on their kicks. And I thought that was brilliant, just brilliant. But she was wearing off the tops of her shoes. That is a red flag for spasticity. Now, in grad school, speech language pathologists are not traditionally taught to look at the whole person, much less anything below the clavicle. So when you walk into your patient's home, when the patient walks into your facility, you need to take into account everything, how they're interacting with their environment, how are they transitioning across different terrains. And by terrains, I mean, going from linoleum floor to carpet, going from hardwood to the area rug, going from gravel to grass or asphalt to grass. What are they doing? How are they accessing that motor movement planning? Because speech is a fine motor skill. If they don't have the gross motor capacity to navigate the terrain and interact with their environment, they are raising significant red flags for fine motor acquisition, for co-articulation of speech sounds, language, motor planning, accessing devices, as well as eating and drinking. And before we go any further, please, 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 everybody log into Purdue I Eat Lab and follow Dr. Georgia Melendrecki, who's the current president of the Dysphagia Research Society, and absorb the mind-blowing content that she is putting forth on the specific area of mastication patterns. And she's also done a ton of research on CP mastication patterns, which we'll highlight briefly in a little bit, but that's huge. But spasticity impacts all of it. And when we're talking about muscles and increased tone, y'all, that also 
that tone, if they're that tight and they're that fancy hot thigh muscle, you know, which one I'm talking about that I can't remember its name, but the one that looks really cool when I jog and I know it's really tight and I have less of the wiggles on the side, that one, if we're seeing increased tone there, then I'm also wondering increased tone in their diaphragm and how are they actually mm-hmm. working to contract and expand to actually pull stool through. So there you go. Okay. Yeah. The next one, this is where I am old enough. I love saying that I am old enough that the dyskinetic CP used to be broken out more into just lumped under athetoid CP. And now it's actually rephrased into dyskinetic CP. It's kind of like we don't call them absent seizures anymore. They're focal seizures, but old, late gray haired lady in the room. Erin, the athetoid CP dyskinetic. Do you want to describe it? So with these children and adults who have dyskinetic CP, it's a lot of problems with controlling the movements of their hands, their arms, their feet, and their legs, which makes it more difficult for them to sit and walk. They can be kind of like slow and writhing or rapid and jerky dependent. And sometimes you can see going into difficulties with feeding, they can have difficulties with sucking, swallowing, and talking because the tongue and face movements can be impacted. And the muscle tone can change. So it could be varying from being too tight or too loose from day to day or even during a single day, which is also, if you think about it, if you have changes in your tone, but if you think about like grading your movements and understanding how much effort to put into your movements, it makes sense why they have difficulties controlling them because they can't trust the tone of their own body. Whereas like if you have a child with really low tone, they're having to use a lot more effort to move their body. And then what happens when that tone changes and it, how are you going to have control of those movements? If that makes sense. Yes. Fatigue, exhaustion, exertion also play in and always go back to what's the etiology and what's driving this particular type of cerebral palsy. Where is the infarct or absence of cortical structures? I've had the pleasure of working with two little ones that were clearly diagnosed with athetoid presentation of CP. And again, spastic CP is what you're going to see the most of dyskinetic and athetoid as one of the subsets is more rare. So one of the little ones that we worked with, she had a rare genetic condition and her genetic condition told her body not to make the dead center of her cerebellum. It's just missing for lack of a better phrase. Um, she has cask McPick too. It looks like somebody took an ice cream scoop right to the center of her cerebellum and it's just gone. It has left her with slow writhing motions. And when we first started her journey, when she was four or five months old, and I've been with them now, she's five and change. So for <laughs> almost since the beginning, she had trouble sticking into her pattern. So she would get her rhythm for suck, swallow, breathe at breast. However, if she paused to burp, 
to reposition or if there was a change in letdown, it happens. It's not like you can control them or you have a spigot to change the flow rate. They just do what they want to do. All of the nursing and or have breastfed moms in the room are like, yes, they have a mind of their own. But if there was a secondary letdown or mom's breast milk was finishing its turn and the child had to break and come back on, It was like starting all over from scratch every single time. And as she's gotten older, now that little one has a feeding tube for quantity so that she can work on quality because she is independent and knows her own life and is going to feed herself her very own fish sticks. But the act of reaching out to pick up the bite to bring it to her mouth can take legitimately 30 seconds to a minute and a half in between each bite. And then we have the whole act and pattern of mastication, respiration, deglutition, and that takes time and that's okay for her. We are working on quality, not quantity, but those are some considerations. The other little one that I worked with that had an athetoid CP, her etiology was incredibly complex. She was diagnosed in utero as having Down syndrome. The family did the genetic testing. And subsequently, fetal alcohol syndrome was added to the mix. Parents were by far geriatric pregnancies. I think dad was in his 50s and mom was in her late 40s, early 50s. I never quite got the full picture there. The smoking exposure in utero suspected marijuana. However, it never showed up when they were in office for testing. Subsequently, the child was removed from the home and placed in the care of a loved one and thrived. But Because of all of these factors, the little one also developed infantile spasms that morphed into Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which I highly recommend that if you are working with school-age children, I use that loosely like four and up, and you see the term LGS on their PMH, you need to go back and find out whether or not they had infantile spasms because it's atypical to get LGS without having infantile spasms previously, but those spasms and seizures can, it's called the catastrophic seizure disorder for a reason. So this sweet little child that I was working with was eight when I started working with her and her athetoid movements, they had created a safe space in their house. It was a oversized playpen about, about the size of my grandma's bed that's sitting behind me, but that was my grandma's bedroom. She passed away. She raised me. I love this bed, but that's about the size. And she would move around and fall because of drop seizures that were still occurring and or her athetoid movements. But I had to understand how one contributed to another to another. Grandma was very patient while I was learning, which I'm still very appreciative for. (laughs) Yes. Okay. All right. Wow. I squirreled, but we really want to put these CP presentations into a personal light. It's not You can't just hear CP and you've heard it once and now you know what it looks like. We're talking about humans. We're talking about another life. Okay. What about ataxic cerebral palsy? That's going to have a lot to do with balance and coordination. So you'll see these children present with unsteady gait, quick movements that need a lot of control. They might have difficulty with like writing. Overshooting. mm Mm-hmm. They might have a hard time like controlling their hands when they reach for something. 
So, I mean, with any type of cerebral palsy, like you have to think about praxis and what you're asking these children to do. Like Michelle was talking about with the going from one train to another, that's praxis. That's this floor looks like this. And then I have to move on to this other floor. I had just had a conversation with a geneticist on Friday and he was like, why? Because I was working at Rec Clinic and he was like, why do these girls have so much trouble going from one train to another? It's praxis. It's, I have this movement, like you were talking on the bottle. I'm doing this on, and then something changes and mm-hmm. my body takes an extra second because their brain is impacting their motor movements. So it just makes sense why asking them to change something quickly or like something that does require very fine motor, quick changes and what you're doing are going to be more difficult. Mm -hmm. The last category is mixed. And for lack of a better phrase, think of it as a combo of one and or all of the above with the most prevalent being spastic dyskinetic. So spastic athetoid or spastic and choreoptoid. Yep. Uh-huh. What did and, our friend have that the one who shoved the sword down her throat? <laughs> Wait, okay. When you say it like that, it sounds really okay. Um She's okay. Oh <laughs> so Oh God. I love that mom. Oh my God. I laughed so hard. I almost peed. Oh, I started pelvic floor therapy. Ladies, let me just tell you, if you have had a child, may I recommend pelvic floor therapy for the sneeze pee and the laughing part. Somehow or another, I went to take goose to get his sprained ankle worked on. And I said, baby, don't make mommy laugh so hard. I'm going to tinkle. And the physical therapist said, we're going to sign mom up for that because I'm a pelvic floor therapist. And there was confusion on the boys ends. We changed the topic and moved on, but I'm now here to tell everybody they should have pelvic floor therapy, but I digress. She had mixed, she had spastic, a taxic, if memory serves correct. We worked with this little girl years ago. Were you my student or was that your CF? I was your student. And then I had her during my CF. Yes, 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 yes. And they came home. She'd had a massive, massive bleed. It was a grade four. They had palliative care nursing in. Mom had horrible postpartum. There was another stroke where she went completely MPO because we were on like quality of life pleasure feeds. We thought we were going to go hospice route. And then by grace, this kid turned a corner. And she had absolutely no gag reflex because that secondary stroke was actually in her brainstem and it hit her swallow reflex and everything else. So she was completely in PO for a couple months, but she would take things that she would find around the house. And once she could get up and move and crawl and walk and just shove them in her throat as far as she could. So one time mom and I were standing in the kitchen and we turned around and honest to goodness, there was the tip of a dish towel hanging out from her mouth. And her mom was like, thought I put that up. And she just pulled it out. Like it was a cartoon and it just kept coming. And she would grab her dad's drumsticks and I will never forget the day mom called and was like, she just made herself throw up. And I started singing hallelujahs and like, you know, praising in the background. And mom was like, what does that mean? And her gag reflex had come back. She had started healing and recovering. It was a drumstick, not a sword. Someone put a sword yes. down their throat at our gala on Friday. It was like a show. So that's what that was from. Oh my God. I said that one time as an example in a case study. And they were like, was it like a chicken drumstick? And I was like, no, it was like a I don't, <laughs> drumstick. 
But when you finished with her, she was what completely PO and mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Walking. She, she was saying like three word utterances at that point. She'd be like, she had a little sibling at that point and she'd be like, baby, go night, night, baby, go night, night, go night, night, baby, go night. Cause of the control of her tone, her frequency. But my favorite was the one where she just walked around the house. She was F it, F it, F it. And she could repeat it over and over again. Cause she'd practice it. And mom was like, I didn't teach her that dad did, but for a solid 10 minutes, she walked around the house and used the full word. It was like, F it, F it just because she was practicing. That is language acquisition. That's why it was right there. And out of the mouths of babes, what we say, they will repeat. God helps all because there has definitely let a couple slip. And I'm like, Ooh, that was your mother, not your father, but yes. Okay. This is just it. We've gone through the four overarching categories, but For us, they're personal because it's a real case. It's a real human. And it puts us right back there sitting on their living room floor, having them walk into the clinic, meet them where they are, and how do we progress going forward? So let's go to feeding because feeding would develop naturally and then language. How about feeding? Okay. 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 With, I like how I say that, but then I want to start with older children instead of starting in infancy because that makes perfect sense in my head. But I have a little one who has Down syndrome. And there is an increased prevalence for flaccid dysarthria with our children that have Down syndrome because they have an increased risk factor for one of these or a combination of the mixed CP cerebral palsy. It's low tone that permeates. Sometimes you'll see that they have spasticities in their extremities. And I had a little one who is diagnosed with flaccid dysarthria, has Down syndrome, has ASD, a whole host of other things, but he constantly had emesis. His entire gastric contents would release and come out of his nose. And he was getting chronic sinus infections and the pediatrician couldn't figure out why the child was getting chronic sinus infections. And mom changed pediatricians because, you know, if your dinner comes out of your nose three times a week, probably going to have gastric contents in your sinus cavities and or nasal turbinates. And that's not good for anybody. We actually sent him to the specialty, the VPI clinic, because I honestly thought he had VPI and he couldn't lift, get complete closure. And that's why we had nasal regurgitation. But when they went through the testing, and this is why we get our differential diagnoses, it was flaccid dysarthria, which is great because those are two totally different therapeutic treatment options for both. And a flaccid dysarthria diagnosis led GI down the different paths. We finally got that child to a point of healing. But again, we have to engage in interprofessional practice for these children and also recognize that I can't fix his gastric contents coming out of his nose, but that is playing a huge contributing factor for him not wanting to eat or even touch food because he saw it all the time in form of emesis. Okay, so we probably should have started with the prevalence of children. I have a killer quote, American Academy of Pediatrics, oropharyngeal dysphagia and cerebral palsy was from December, 2017. Catherine Benefer was the first author. Kelly Weir was second author. I think it's Kelly Weir. I won't mince words, but they did a longitudinal study on children with cerebral palsy. And what they found was that There was a direct inverse relationship. So the more extensive the gross motor impairment, 
the higher the prevalence of oropharyngeal dysphagia. So proportion of children with oropharyngeal dysphagia decreased from 24 to 60 months. So at 18 to 24 months, all of the children in the study, about 80% of them had an oropharyngeal dysphagia by 60 months, five years of age, it dropped down to about 43% unless they had severe like hemiplegia, like if, or quadriplegia, if all four limbs were impacted, then it actually increased their risk factor for having long-term oropharyngeal dysphagia. So their takeaway was that we really need to get these children moving and get them moving early and work closely with occupational therapy and physical therapy because it's the alimentary canal. It goes sphincter to sphincter from lips to anus. And we have to engage with PT and OT to move everything clavicle down. Well, I mean, clavicle. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, and we also have to think about from... Yeah, I have, I think, of one patient right now that the physician is struggling understanding why we have emesis all the time and are always constipated, but we have spastic CP on top of a lot of other etiologies and things aren't moving through. I had a conversation with an OT the other day about the importance of getting these patients to see OT and PT very early so that A, they can work on stretches. And like you said, getting these kids moving, getting them. Wait, 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 so wait. That- when Aaron says stretches, she's not talking about non-speech oral motor exercises. No. She's talking about gross motor body stretches. Sorry. Especially for our, thank you for clarifying, especially for our spastic CP kids that we work with, because they, you know, if you get a kid that's always in one position, if you are not stretching them and not moving them, it's going to continue to be harder to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's going to seem like they're more spastic because they're not moving. And you also have to make sure that from a participation standpoint, even for feeding, that you get them the right equipment at the right time. These are the children that you might, and if you talk to a really good OT and a really good PT, they have the same argument that we do with AAC, where if it is developmentally appropriate, for them to be participating in a certain way and they aren't walking, they should be in a wheelchair at least to, and that will help build independence and help them walk sooner. Just like we argue with people about how AAC doesn't stop children from talking, wheelchairs do not stop children from walking, which is really, really important because it ups their participation, it ups their experience. If you have, and she put it perfectly, if you have a kid in a stroller, that's a submissive position. They're not in a position where they can participate. So that's really, really important. And these are the children that you really have to think about positioning with feeding as well, because I have a lot of conversations about how, and this is with anything that we do with feeding. I think you have to look at functionally what's, what are the family's goals and what the child's goals is. I can work on with PTNO, it can be working on gross motor skills that will eventually help their fine motor skills while we also make sure that they're in a good position because if they're supported, then they can have more improved fine motor skills because they're not using so much of their cognitive load, core strength to just hold themselves up. But that's just something to think about with all of these types of cerebral palsy to make sure, like you said, we're working with OT and PT, they're seen as early as possible, and we're looking at function while strengthening skills at the same time. 
a couple of different thoughts. One, this is where we collaborate with our durable medical equipment folks, because look, we honestly, how many of you listening actually had any exposure to durable medical equipment aside from the stationary? Maybe you saw like a Rifton chair in a clinic when you were in grad school, unless you actually have a specialty clinic at your university, you probably don't get to see all of the amazing options that are out there, right? Tumble form. I have yet to meet an OT or a PT that is in love with the tumble form for all of their patients because it's a tumble. Like there's just no support unless you have a child that still needs to be cradled for regulation, right? But for whoop, for tone and strength, that's not an ideal position for safe PO intake for most of our patients, right? Also, durable medical equipment changes. It's like a new iteration comes out every so many years, just like the newest iPhone or the newest model of a car, right? The Special Tomato is a fantastic chair. It's very expensive here in the South. You can get it embroidered in different colors with your child's initials, which kind of cracks me up because it's the same like the monogram hand towels that I am still a Virginia mountain girl at heart. It just kind of makes me giggle like you forget your names. You have to put it on a hand towel. But I mean, I've been here long enough. I can at least say, hey, but it's pretty. (laughs) But the DME representative brings with them that unique advanced skill set of they know what's currently available on the market, also how to get it approved by insurance, okay? So there's a fair few of you out there that may not have easy access to an OT, a PT because of how rural you work, but you can request- A lot uh, of them have sample letters on their websites. Like Rifton has yes. like a sample letter that you can use. I will also say with our children with CP, you should never assume, and this is a feeding, should never assume that thicker is better. Yeah. But you should really not assume that thicker is better with children with cerebral palsy because of the awareness. And like I've done a lot of small studies with older children with cerebral palsy that have a ton of residue with much thicker consistencies. And I wish I had the article, but there is some research out there and I will find it and we can post it on our Instagram about how, I mean, a lot of children with CP aspirate a good amount and are pretty healthy. So you have to work with the entire team to see which risk benefit. And there are also some articles out there talking about like feeding tubes versus liquids and the impact of either one of those risk benefits. So I have a lot of conversations with the entire team about what is safe, what it has a higher risk versus not when it comes to aspiration with these patients, because it is a lot of the awareness sometimes that can really impact their risk of aspirating. One of the things that we do clinically that is based in research, do you remember the silver pipette, the chilling, he's from Florida. It'll come to me in the middle of the night. He's the reason that we did the tactile thermal cueing where you- Oh, yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. We know that it is unwise to take a chilled silver pipette and stimulate the posterior fascial pillar of a child to increase the effectiveness of the swallow. That works great in research purposes only, but not in application. But changing temperatures slightly to arouse and alert without alarming or fight or flight may end up being a strategy that works for some of your patients. Also, long gone 
on are the days that we focus on having a fully intact rotary chew development by the age of four. And we can thank the Purdue Eye Eats Lab and Dr. Georgia Melandrecki's work because her research, and she has spent a significant amount of time conducting research with children that has cerebral palsy, has clearly demonstrated that up into the age of 12, mastication patterns can evolve. It is time and exposure with food. We do realize there's an increased prevalence for feeding tube for quantity for our children that have cerebral palsy while we're working on the quality of the feeds. And one of the things that Dr. Melandraki also talked about was her research did not support the utilization of non-speech oral motor exercises to increase mastication deglutition because a couple of things. One, the premise that you would utilize putting a piece of plastic in a child's mouth to work on increasing the strength and the tone of the chew. As she explained, these children tend to have fully adequate strength and they have increased tone and they're so strong that they're compensating for that increased tone to manipulate the bolus. So it's kind of like they're doing twice the amount of work to have a safe, enjoyable mealtime. And so we're huge fans of the Purdue IE lab and the research that they're putting out. We had Dr. Melandraki on first bite probably six months ago, maybe. So it's back in an episode, but y'all go back here from the greats. That's one of the reasons that Aaron and I interview the greats in the fields for first bite is so that we can expedite research to practice, to eradicate not current evidence-based approaches. But there's my drumstick. <laughs> okay. Any, anything else about cerebral palsy with deglutition, respiration? Any thoughts on the infant population? I also think with this population, you have to give them a chance to show you what they can do. I think it's a little scary at first, especially when you're a new clinician. Like you have to find safe ways for them to eat, but like you said, it's building coordination for a lot of them and you have to give them a chance. Mm -hmm. So don't assume that they won't be able to chew. If you're nervous about it, like there's different ways to try really small bites of food. Like Michelle said, I'm a big proponent of using increased sensory input, whether it be through flavor or temperature or texture or things like that to aid in manipulating the bolus and feeling where it is in their mouth. But I feel like there are a lot of children with CP that it's either they're only on purees and you've never given them a chance to chew, or you get a kid that comes in and they're eating everything, but the kitchen sink. And you're like, whoa, okay, wait a second. <laughs> like I just, I feel like when I get evaluations, it's like, it's either, well, we're just going to give them everything. And like, maybe not everything is the safest or they haven't given them a chance. So try to be in the middle somewhere. Dependent. <laughs> Uh-huh. Okay, wait. For our infants, I have noticed a increased prevalence in work of breathing for timing respiration and deglutition. We don't have time to go into all of our favorite therapeutic approaches today because today is about understanding the etiology and how they can impact. So I would make sure for your children that you suspect CP or you have a known diagnosis of cerebral palsy, get them to a pediatric ENT 
because if we have hemiparesis and increased tone for our infants, I'm worried about what it's doing at the level of our larynx and how it's innervating our vocal folds, especially for our patients that have severe and profound strokes. I love the Sophie method with Dr. Aaron Ross. I think that's a fantastic resource for our bottle fed babies. That's just a great course to go and take anything else because we do need to switch over to language folks. Do y'all have any other questions on CP and how it can contribute to, Oh, poop. Oh my God. How did we forget poop esophageal motility delayed gastric? We we touched on it. We touched on it. We touched on it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you have increased tone and spasticity through your core, through your diaphragm, I can anticipate that you will have diminished capacity to fully fill your lung base in order to have a productive volitional cough, to fully contract, to actually succinctly move a bowel movement through. And if you can't get the poop out, you will not be able to get the poop in. My uncle Matthew has cerebral palsy. He has mixed. We have low tone through our core, through our shoulders. He's got tightened tone in his legs and lower tone through his, through his little belly, uncle Matthew, but he struggles with constipation all the time. And he's 45 years old. So A child with cerebral palsy, an infant will grow into an adult and we are equipping them across their life continuum, right? And then age hits and thyroid hits and there's other factors, but yes. Okay. So language, how can cerebral palsy impact language lady? We talked a little bit about the different types of CP. So it definitely depends on what type of CP you're working with. If you think about ataxic CP and its difficulty with coordination, Mm -hmm. how's that going to impact their speech versus spasticity? Yes. So I have to go two different ways. Anatomically, from a structural perspective, innervation, vocal fold paralysis, neuromotor planning, as well as depending upon the placement of the stroke, and within the motor planning, access to switch devices, right? But then depending upon the placement of the stroke, impact into intellectual disability and how that can carry over to a functional language delay because language and intellect are incredibly intertwined, intimately intertwined there. So making sure that we reach appropriate maximal gains given the severity type frequency and placement of whatever the original infarct or absence of structures were that resulted in the specific type of cerebral palsy. Y'all, this is why we always go back to what's the etiology (laughs) because they're so different. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Go. (laughs) No, but I think when it comes to speech and language, you have to assess where they're at. So whatever type of assessment that you're giving, whether it be observation. I really like the communication matrix. I prefer the communication matrix. The functional communication profile is another one that I'll use often. But I like to start with, okay, where are they? And then like you said, what is the underlying etiology? So how is this probably impacting where they are? And what is functional goal-wise for me to work on? I feel like we get a lot of children, especially with spastic CP, that have a lot of articulation difficulties. And so I see so many children who have so much that they want to say, 
but their articulation and their ability to make those precise fine motor movements with their articulators create the correct resonance for someone to understand them intelligibility wise is very difficult. And so what I struggle with with some parents is like, oh, they talk and I can understand them. You're like, that's great. You can understand most of what they're saying, but the people that they want to interact with on a daily basis can't quite understand them as much. So finding that balance of helping work on that articulation, if we feel that that's functional and appropriate, while also giving them an access to communication that can help them be understood. So that's a challenge that I feel like I run into with parents because their child is talking and we didn't know if they were going to talk. And this is so awesome because they're communicating and I can hear their words and that's wonderful. But how frustrating is it for these children to not be understood and able to expand in their social interactions and their overall development because of these articulation and fluency difficulties. Yeah, especially with our spastic CP patients. So, but a lot of these kids end up having a dysarthria. When we think of dysarthria or when we truly think of apraxia, because some of these little ones mm-hmm. will have apraxia. Because of the motor it's a, it's a motor it's a, it's a motor it's a motor yes also and if you think a kid might have apraxia if they don't have a cp diagnosis like some of the patients that michelle is talking about not saying you have to have a cp diagnosis to have apraxia but michelle and i are under the same philosophy theory that there is some sort of brain damage likely if a child has apraxia, but I would encourage you to talk to occupational therapists or PTs who work with this patient and ask them if they have dyspraxic movements, because a lot of them go pretty hand in hand. Um, And we get them to a neurologist and then get the MRI and or the CT scan and then go back and find out where, what occurred when. Because which is is difficult to everyone else's credit to convince a parent to go to neurology and get an MRI is mm-hmm. a very hard conversation to have, especially if their child has what they would deem like mild speech and language. Yes, deficit. yes. So, but what you'll find is that these things are intimate again, intimately intertwined. And when we're going through and talking about child language, I did not have dysarthria addressed in my child language, any of the dysarthrias I, in my child language class, we got childhood apraxia of speech, but it was not presented within the framework of this could be driven by an underlying neurogenic or neuro-based disorder. And I say neurogenic because like there's some conditions such as like quadruple X that are known to have increase of apraxia of speech as well as dyspraxia and CP. Like they all go hand in hand. And this is where I don't treat speech sounds disorders, but I know enough to know to go to the source when I'm making referrals. And this is where I will follow up with caveat back to, we had Amy Graham on and she talked about it and gave us examples of the different therapeutic approaches that were clinically indicated according to different speech sound disorders. And then if I get a kid on to talk about feeding and mom really wants to work on articulation and how the child is communicating those, but is not interested at this moment in time with working with a communication device, then I will empower the caregiver to see my colleague who has prompt training and is fantastic in the clinic because that's not me. (laughs) 
But I know that. Well, and that's that, okay to see that. To that point, part of our code of ethics mm-hmm. is to refer if something feels outside of our scope of practice. Yes. So you better believe that if I'm so tired of hearing from parents that their speech therapist isn't comfortable with AAC. First of all, it's one of the big nine. So I don't really understand why there's an excuse for that. I get it can be a specialized skill. But second of all, if you don't feel comfortable with it, especially if the parent's asking you about it, refer them to someone that is. I mean, I know we're not counselors, but like as a counselor, a psychologist, if they're not a right fit for someone, they have to find them someone that is. And I think that we should abide by a similar philosophy. Yes, that's what we're supposed to do. Okay, so we'll put an AAC, I assume competence. I will put an AAC device in a toddler's hands basically the second they walk in the door. And it may take me trying a couple of different language programs. It may take me trying. We are very fortunate in our clinic, Control Bionics and Talk to Me Technologies. They have long-term loans that they can collaborate for free, folks. Let me say that again. Talk to Me Technologies and Control Bionics are AAC companies. I love and adore them. They don't pay me to say this. This is just, I have so much respect for their collaboration. They can for free set you up with a couple of long-term loan devices to have in your clinic so that I have them readily accessible. And I have different trial pages on there so that when a child comes in and I'm like, oh, we have a little guy who comes in in his wheelchair. He does have CP. He has athetoid motions. So he's got the dyskinetic CP, VP shunt, hydrocephaly, grade three CVA. I don't know if it was in utero or shortly after birth. Anywho, we're trying devices and we have a raking grasp and we are still struggling with head control, but don't you know, we are trying all of the different access points and that's just it. There are different access points, such as switch devices, such as scanners that y'all, you can reach out to them and they will set up trainings for you so that you feel comfortable so that, yeah, which you, reminds me, I need to email control bionics. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Lane, <laughs> email the lane, Lane Riles. She's amazing. Lane, we love you. But They will set this up to empower you so that in the privacy of your home on Friday night, when your kids are watching, oh my gosh, Spaceballs for the 100th time and acting out the crashing scene where he like flies and I'm really old. You've seen Spaceballs, right? Only shorts be with you. It's great. This is yes. Anywho, but you can practice on these devices to build confidence so that you understand so that you can in turn demonstrate this to the families, either through caregiver coaching, modeling, and direct service delivery, followed up with caregiver coaching. So that's a full circle and a precursor to Thursday night go team. But okay, that was really, really fast because we spent so much time going through case studies in the beginning. But y'all, I know we have gone over. Are there questions? And folks, if you're listening after hours and not live, send us your questions on First Bite Instagram. First Bite Podcast. Is that what our Instagram handle is? I'm terrible at this. First Bite Podcast. (laughs) Okay. Is there any final thoughts? Because I know everybody, it's a Monday night. Everybody's tired and ready to hit the hay. Any other thoughts, hon? One thing that I really, really love, and I don't, I'll plug them in every podcast about DIR, Mm -hmm. is that you create an individual profile for every patient, which involves 
motor, visuospatial, all their sensory components, family, like how, like, I think we have to start doing that with all of our patients to better understand, because I think, yes, we're talking about CP in this episode, but what you can clearly take apart from what we've been saying is that every child is still different and unique. And it's important to understand where that cerebral palsy diagnosis is coming from. Like Michelle and I said, where the infarct is, if there was lack of oxygen to the brain, if there's genetic diagnosis that's impacting that, like knowing as much information as you possibly can will help you set that child up for success. And always, always, always presume competence because with this population that does not happen all the time and we need to give them, Kate McLaughlin is fantastic with AAC. I think she has a course for Learn, Play, Thrive, and she talks about making sure a child has access to everything that they want to say, even if they need a little bit of help to do that. So that's just a big thing I want people to take away is to make sure that we are presuming that they can do it and giving them an opportunity to show us instead of assuming that they can't. Okay. I'm going to close with a double week win because last week, this little boy who had neonatal abstinence syndrome was a preemie, not a micro preemie, but a preemie and an oxic event and has mixed CP. He got his communication device and also been touching on a little bit of feeding and we were playing a game and bless him last week. He spontaneously conveyed green on the device, kissed a green bean, licked it, winked at me, the little booger and tossed it in a bucket and bolted to the next activity. And today he, we were working through the help page on lamp and we were talking about sneezing this child six weeks ago had very limited spontaneous verbal communication. And today he conveyed a sneeze on the device, looked at me, I'd chew and pretended to pat my nose. (laughs) And it was like, it was beautiful. And that's why we do the thing that we do. And it was a double win week. So feeding front language front go team. So, okay, folks, Aaron, thank you. Be sure to visit us on First Bite Podcast. Remember, every episode does count as a ASHA continuing education course if you log into your speechtherapypd.com class. Aaron and I are heading to New Orleans the first weekend in June, along with the one and only Kristen West and Dr. Rocky Garcia and her fabulousness. And so y'all come join us at LASHA in New Orleans for two days of intensive PFD training. And then please be sure to also check out First Bite on Facebook page to see any upcoming live courses that we have. So everybody, thank you so much for joining us and have a good night. (laughs) Bye. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. 
The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.